If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, December the 11th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office, Admiral Gary Ruffhead. Admiral Ruffhead served his nation proudly as a surface warfare officer, the first officer to command both classes of Aegis ships, and one of only two officers to have commanded both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. And I think I know the answer to that trivia question. Is it Tom Moore? That's correct. I know that because I went to high school with his nephew. I'll be darned. That's the only reason why I know that. Admiral Ruffhead served as Commandant of the United States Naval Academy, the Department of Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. In September 2009, he was appointed the nation's 29th Chief of Naval Operations. Gary Ruffhead is the Robert Marion Oster Distinguished Military Fellow at the Hoover at the Hoover Institution and the Chair of Hoover's Arctic Security Working Group. So first question, Admiral. Your preferred post. You've had a long career. I know you don't like to say you had a favorite post, but which one stands out in terms of being most rewarding? Well, I think the the ones that have always been most rewarding are the times that I was assigned to ships and particularly commanding ships. And uh, the one that stands probably at the top it was my final uh, ship command, which was the cruiser uh, USS Port Royal, uh, home ported in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and it just doesn't get any better than that, and particularly the crew and the wardroom, which is the term that we apply to the officers on board the ship, was uh, what I think back on as the dream team, and uh, and that was terrific. As I moved up uh, uh, in seniority, I would have to say commanding the Pacific Fleet was uh, the the one that that is at the top of of tours ashore. Sink back. Uh, no, uh, Pacific Fleet. Pacific Fleet, yeah. um, and, uh, and it was, a, it was a, a, a wonderful area to be operating. When you get up in the morning in Hawaii and you look around, you're looking at nothing but ocean, regardless of what direction you look in. Uh, but it was also a time that uh, Asia was undergoing some significant change from a maritime perspective, especially as we saw China uh, rising and uh, and that, and so that that tour really stands out as the one that uh, that that was the most enjoyable, the most interesting, and and the point in time I think was uh, was significant. Is Pearl Harbor also special given the history of the place? Without question, uh, every time I sailed in or out of Pearl Harbor, there is uh, a sense that comes over you that you are in a very very special place. Um, you know, for the Navy, I can think of no more hallowed ground than than the waters in Pearl Harbor and what went on there. But I think it's also uh, indicative of the strength of our country, the strength of our Navy in particular, to suffer um, an attack like that and then be able uh, to come back and to sweep the seas and contribute so much to victory in the Pacific. I think it's just a, an incredible statement on, on, on our Navy of that time, but also the legacy that has been 
passed on and ingrained in the in, in the Navy of today. I was interviewing uh, Victor Davis Hanson for this podcast uh, last week, and he's written a, a rather remarkable book about the history of the Second World Wars. Wars plural, he talks about because he talks about a conflict in the Pacific and a conflict Correct. in Europe. And uh, I remember back in 1991 when the elder George Bush gave a speech at Pearl Harbor on the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And it was a big deal because it was the 50th, and also he was trying to reboot his presidency for the upcoming election. Mm -hmm. But it's concerning that with each and every passing year, Pearl Harbor becomes a little bit less of a memory. Now, in part, that's because if you look at the veterans of that conflict, they're now in their mid-90s. I think there are three or four survivors still of the Arizona, and they're all about 95 mm -hmm. or 96 years old. But fewer people seem to know about the events of December 7th or just seem to have blocked out about what happened, but also the fact that the nation was caught unaware. Absolutely, and, uh, and as a naval officer, uh, that uh, was one of my touchstones, was to never be caught unaware. But I think it is important to continue to reflect back on, on our history, to make sure that, uh, that history is something that, uh, I won't even say continues to be emphasized, but really needs to be re-emphasized in, in the education of our young people. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, as you well know, Mark Twain had it right. Uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, and and it's always important to be able to look back and and be informed and learn from from those lessons of history. I could talk to you about your career all day long, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'd like to focus you on two theaters in particular. Mm -hmm. The first is the Middle East. Now, um, shortly after Thanksgiving, the carrier Teddy Roosevelt, the Theodore Roosevelt, its carrier group, uh, sailed into the Persian Gulf. Uh, replaced the Nimitz, which had departed in October. The mission was to join the ongoing operation Inherent Resolve ISIS, strikes over Syria and Iraq. We also have an amphibious ready group and a Marine Expeditionary Force operating in the Pacific, in the, excuse me, in the Persian Gulf. This has been going on for how long now? How long have we been doing sorties in the Persian Gulf? For a long time. I mean, there was, uh, we always had carriers operating in the Middle East, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until uh, Desert Storm that uh, we began putting aircraft carriers in the Gulf. There was always the, the, the belief, if you will, that you never wanted to put an aircraft carrier in the Gulf. And I believe in Desert Storm, we peaked at five aircraft carriers in the Gulf, which if uh, you've sailed in those waters, you know that five aircraft carriers uh, pretty much uh, fills the place up. But the thing that you have to think about with an aircraft carrier is the the activity and the distance of that activity that goes on around those ships, it can get uh, quite complex. But the thing about uh, being able to have an aircraft carrier in the Gulf, indeed an aircraft carrier anywhere, mm -hmm. is that you don't have to worry about basing rights or constraints that the host country may put on those basings, on, the, on those basing rights. Um, and you uh, don't have to worry for, uh, for uh, concerns over overflight because you're normally coming in from a coastline and, mm -hmm. and pressing right in. So the aircraft carrier in the Gulf gives the commanders there a, a, a tremendous capability and flexibility that you don't always have with land-based aircraft. This year is ending with a lot of tension in that region right now. The Saudis and Qatars have had their problems in 2017. Uh, Yemen is in the midst of a just terrible, terrible civil war. 
And the Saudis and the Iranians are now talking about uh, perhaps going to arms against each other, having a fight with each other. Do you worry about this spilling out into the Gulf itself? In other words, back in the 1980s, there was a war between Iran and Iraq. It was mostly a land war, but that spilled out in the Persian Gulf. Yeah, I think anytime there's a conflict, particularly between uh, Iran and, um, and, and Saudi Arabia or any of the Sunni states mm -hmm. that are in the Gulf, the concerns always uh, have to take into account the maritime dimension, not just because of the activities that can take place in the Gulf itself, but also the Straits of Hormuz, which are the inflow and the outflow of, uh, of, of commerce, but, but uh, uh, that's how the energy moves in and out of that very energy-rich area. And so uh, disruptions in that strait will have global consequences because of the, the amount of energy that moves from the Middle East, particularly the Persian Gulf, into the Asian economies. So any uh, hint of disruption in those straits is, is significant. And as you know, Iran sits, sits on, on that strait mm -hmm. and threatens from time to time to close it either with um, traditional naval activity or, or more problematically with mining. Uh, Your assessment of the Iranian Navy, what, what are they capable of doing? Yeah, I think when you look at the Iranian naval capability, you have to think of it in two components. One is uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Navy, mm -hmm. or IRGCN, it's really Iran, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy. And then the the uh, Iranian Navy itself. Now the, form, and the formers are the ones who are on the speedboats. That's correct. Playing sort of cat and mouse that's with correct. us. That's mm correct. -hmm. And several years ago, the decision was made in Iran that the guard would have the Gulf, and the Iranian Navy would perform more traditional naval roles outside the Gulf. Uh, the tactics and the techniques and the equipment of the Guard Navy uh, is uh, what we would call in a land war unconventional. Uh, as you alluded to, speedboats, um, very large numbers of them, developing tactics around those types of capabilities. But the other thing I think that is the most consequential in the Gulf, should there be any kind of a conflict between uh, particularly Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, is what the effect would be on uh, maritime and coastal infrastructure. And everyone automatically thinks about oil infrastructure, right. significant. But when you consider how much of the water that the, the, the Gulf countries, and particularly Saudi Arabia, derives from uh, desalinization of, of, uh, of that and, and, and the percentages that feed major metropolitan areas, that's always cause for concern. So I think there's that aspect of, of, of naval operations performed by the, by the Guard Navy. And then uh, the more traditional Navy is one that uh, has not been in very good repair, has not been very well resourced. But with the lifting of sanctions, my view is that you will see the Iranian Navy 
proper, I'll refer to that to distinguish it from the guard, begin to recapitalize itself and begin to operate uh, more broadly than it has been able to because of the condition of its, of its Navy. And when you begin to see that happen, you then have Iran being able to exert its influence in a way that becomes much more problematic for uh, particularly Saudi Arabia. Because if you consider having the guard in the Gulf, uh, a recapitalized, expanding, traditional navy that can operate in the North Arabian Sea, that puts it to the south of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And then you have that navy then being able to come into the Red Sea. You now have it completely surrounding uh, Saudi Arabia. You consider the Shia influence in the Levant and at some point it, the Iranian Navy being operating, being able to operate in the Eastern Mediterranean and you begin to give countries a sense of encirclement which is not a very good position to be in. What would inspire the Iranian government to dispatch naval vessels to the Gulf of Mexico? Uh, I think nothing more than the ability to show that they can play in our backyard as we play in their backyard. Are or they trying to send us a your, message or are they just trying to do public relations? I think it's all? purely public relations. Uh, the resources and the effort that has to go into deploying a Navy of that type and capability and capacity that far mm -hmm. is, uh, uh, is pretty significant. And the ships that are there, when you think in terms of the ability to project power or to disrupt sea lanes, it really is, I think, a, um, a public relations uh, statement that's being made and, and in no way has the same effect of our Navy's ability to operate in the Middle East in the way that we do. Should hostilities break out between the Saudis and the Iranians, should missiles start flying back and forth across the Gulf? What are the naval ramifications for Western forces? Will we see something similar to the 1980s when you had when you had various nations on escort duty with tankers? Or what, what do you think the U.S. Navy's role will be? Uh, I I think that one uh, the role would be to uh, destroy the the naval capability and the and 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 protect the the infrastructure of the of the Gulf countries. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then, quite frankly, I'm not sure that you would see much activity from the traditional Iranian Navy. But, but there's no question that the Guard Navy, in its own way, in its very unconventional way, uh, is a challenge. And that's where I believe uh, our level of effort and the effort of, of our friends in the Gulf would, uh, would be primarily focused. What then are your naval orders at that time? Are your orders to, uh, not to fire until fired upon or fire when need be? Or what? how, how does the Navy stay neutral in this? That, I think that uh, is something that the rules of engagement will be set mm -hmm. uh, by uh, the circumstances and clearly by the leaders. But the one thing that has always been the case is that uh, U.S. Navy ships always have uh, the right of self-defense and that commanding officers take that very, very seriously. And uh, so provocative actions that appear to threaten uh, a U.S. Navy ship uh, will, in my view, be met with uh, legitimate defensive actions 
to protect uh, that U.S. Navy ship and its crew. Do you anticipate more naval vessels in the Persian Gulf and in the Red Sea in anticipation of this sort of situation? I, I think that uh, if, how, if uh, tensions were to increase, I think that you would see more uh, naval activity. And uh, largely because of what I mentioned before, right. that you can bring those capabilities to bear without having to put forces on someone else's soil. I also uh, believe that because of the critical uh, nature of, of energy and what it means to the global economy, that uh, you may also see other nations' navies beginning to uh, make either statements or, or be used to make statements or to be there to legitimately protect their economic interests. So that is Britain, that is France? <laughs> I would say the European countries have a, have a, 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 a clear interest in doing that, but also the, the countries of Asia that mm -hmm. depend very heavily on that. And, and clearly the Asian countries that have the capability to deploy and to operate in those regions Japan. are Japan, uh, Korea, a very good navy there, and then then China has uh, has interests as well. So it would be very interesting to see how all that plays out. That was my next question: Would the Chinese Navy try to get involved? Would, uh, we, would we ask them to get involved? I I I'm not sure that they would openly get involved. Uh, the Chinese Navy uh, has does not have a record uh, and has not been inclined to operate in international coalitions. They tend to operate independently, right. but I, I would say that there may be some domestic pressures to use their navy to protect their economic interests. So. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up China because that's the other theater I right. want to get into. Uh, the last time Chinese ships ventured into the Indian Ocean, Admiral Roughhead would have been about the 15th century. It would have been about 600 years ago. Uh, today, you have Chinese ships sailing as far as the Gulf of Aden. You have the premier of China, Xi Jinping, talking about the China dream, talking about what he calls national rejuvenation. On land, we know that what that means. That means absorbing Taiwan. It means uh, keeping a hold on uh, Tibet, uh, having Hong Kong in its possession. But maritime terms, this is a little more tricky. What is talked about is the so-called maritime Silk Road, uh, one belt and one road initiative and so forth. You're watching this right now. You're watching the Chinese develop not just a blue water navy and expanding in the Western Pacific, but now actually making the turn and now heading through the Indian Ocean. What are they up to? Well, I think it is part of the uh, what I call the linked economic and security strategy that uh, that China is uh, is employing, particularly under Xi Jinping. I mm -hmm. think that you'll actually probably see some increased activity as he goes into his second five years. But it's also the case that as, uh, you know, throughout history, as economies have risen and if trade is a factor, and it, and it always is, that, that, that navies increase and grow to support those national interests. It's, you know, we did it. Portuguese did it, the Spaniards did it, the British did it. So what we're seeing there is China uh, following suit. The, the strategy that they have in their one belt, one road, I think is really quite well done. Um, in fact, I'm going to be giving a Hoover talk 
um, and the title uh, that I've picked is uh, Silk Roads and Bad Maps. <laughs> Silk Roads meaning the strategy that China has put forth and bad maps, how we're looking at and responding to what is clearly a very thoughtful, uh, well-resourced strategy. It's not just in the deployment of its ships, but it's also in how it is developing uh, shore infrastructure and developing relationships that give that Chinese fleet opportunities to uh, supply, to um, take uh, some, what we, one might say, so a, a bit of uh, rest and recuperation. And this would be ports like Djibouti? It would be ports like Djibouti, but um, uh, in the case of Djibouti, that is, is one where they clearly have said this is a, 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 an advanced base for us. Right. But if you look at uh, what they have done in Pakistan with the port of Gwadar, uh, they have just, within you know, the last couple of weeks, uh, sealed a deal after some turbulence in Sri Lanka uh, for a port there. And, uh, and what that allows them to do is to have bases or places from which they can operate and support right. themselves that are along this concept of a maritime Silk Road, which is really a trade route. What goes into a base besides obviously just having the pier infrastructure to park your ship? Yeah. Uh, we're talking what barracks? We're talking supplies, munitions? What all uh, goes and, into the package? In the case of uh, uh, the ports in Sri Lanka and Pakistan, I would say that uh, you're not going to see barracks and, and you know there may be some limited billeting and, and uh, administrative spaces for a detachment mm -hmm. uh, of the PLA, but it's mainly fuel, a place to conduct maintenance, right. um, you know, whether or not there are storage facilities that ultimately get put in to be able right. to, to put munitions in. I think that is something that we probably won't see, but, but it really, you know, having the ability to use bases uh, is is very very helpful. So it's not quite like say Yokosuka, which is a home port for the navy, that, right? That's correct. Right, but it's a port nonetheless where one could stop and right. visit. Much the same as as we use uh, ports around the world. For example, um, you know Singapore is a is a port that that you will frequently see U.S. Navy ships going in uh, as they operate in Southeast Asia. Um, we use Bahrain, and, and in the case of Bahrain, we have a uh, have a headquarters there. But uh, you know, we've also been able to use uh, facilities in uh, in the UAE, which are are very helpful for our operations in the Gulf. We don't have barracks, and we don't have a permanent uh, large right. permanent cadre, but it does give you the opportunity to come offline, do maintenance, resupply take a bit of a break and then get back out again. Now, one thing the Chinese will talk about is they sail the Indian Ocean because they're involved in piracy operations, anti-piracy operations, and that also makes Djibouti uh, more, more practical for them. You're the government of India. 
and I don't know if you consider the Indian Ocean Mare Nostrum, as the Romans would have said, our, our, mm. our sea, but you see the Chinese sailing back and forth with increasingly large forces. You're also an Indian Navy, Admiral Roughhead, which is aged. It has a lot of ships that are 20 and 30 years old and faces the question of modernization. Uh, the Indians are building a carrier, or planning to build a carrier. The Chinese have just launched their second carrier. Are we seeing something of an arms race now going on between those two nations, a maritime arms race, yeah. it is? Uh, to your first point, um, you know, I always maintain that my Indian friends think the Indian Ocean is absolutely appropriately named. Mm -hmm. um, and so for India, that ocean, that body of water, the trade routes that, that cross it, uh, it, it is hugely important. And uh, the strategic competition that takes place between China and India ashore it also it takes place at sea. Right. And so I believe that increasing Chinese naval presence, uh, in increasing Chinese naval activity, uh, more frequent use of the bases that I mentioned, Gwadar and in Sri Lanka, will, um, will, will make the Indians very uncomfortable. Uh, and if you look at where those bases are, uh, it, again, it, it, it really sends a very powerful signal to India. Uh, the Indian Navy is aged. Uh, I think that in recent years, you're seeing a desire to recapitalize, a desire to recapitalize and not be solely reliant on Russia because most of, of, uh, of their military capabilities or engines are in the Soviet Union right. and subsequently Russia. In fact, we, um, uh, you know, during my time on active duty, the Indians acquired the very same uh, maritime patrol aircraft that, that we were acquiring at the time for our Navy. And so I think that you will see India do more of that. The other thing that uh, is, is more open today is the relationship with Japan and India and the U.S. And there was an initiative uh, uh, recently put forth to kind of restart a, a, a dialogue about uh, Japan, U.S., India, Australia, because of concerns of uh, uh, being able to ensure uh, control of the sea lanes in, in the Indian Ocean primarily. So I think you'll see India being more open to uh, recapitalizing with either European or American capabilities, which of course for the U.S. is, uh, is an advantage because it, it enhances our ability to operate with the Indian Navy. Uh, meanwhile, what is happening with our country and China in terms of the Western Pacific and China building islands in the middle of ocean and so forth? I think in the early days of the Trump administration, what I think they sent a couple of ships close to the islands. There have been some more reconnaissance flights and things mm -hmm. like that. But what what is our strategy here? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the thing that's very important to recognize about the the features that China has has expanded and built uh, runways and port facilities uh, is that it sets astride one of the most significant trade routes that feeds uh, that feeds Asia, and uh, and China now has infrastructure, military infrastructure, astride those trade routes that that it can use to its advantage. Uh, militarily, the 
uh, I would say those those bases that have been constructed um, could, in conflict, be be very vulnerable. Uh, that said, it still allows China to have some control. It's a statement of uh, of 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 them wanting to reinforce their idea that 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 whole area of the South China Sea is Chinese, mm -hmm. and and I think that's the point that they wish to continue to make. From the U.S. perspective, and even though we have sent what are called freedom of navigation operations right. through that area, in my view, those operations express our commitment to international law and how uh, ships are, are able to move through what we consider to be international waters. Mm -hmm. I should not for a moment uh, uh, say that they constitute deterrence. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the freedom of navigation is a legal thing, right. and if we want to support our friends and our allies and our partners and to deter behavior that could infringe on our and other countries' ability to operate freely uh, in international water, Deterrence is something else, and I think that's where you come into increased naval presence, more interaction uh, among our allies and partners in that in that area to show that right. that we are equally as interested in that that sea lane. We have talked about the Persian Gulf. We have talked about the Indian Ocean. We have talked about the Western Pacific, and we have not even gotten into what's going on off the coast of Korea these days. At the beginning of November, seven of the Navy's 11 carriers were underway, including three in the Western Pacific. The last time this occurred was in 2004, and who authorized that? Uh, that was my operation when I was the commander of the Pacific Fleet. So it's an extraordinary thing to have three carriers down. We were talking before this began that this can sometimes happen in terms of timing. One carrier comes off um, station, another one comes on station, another one's in rotation, so you could do three. But it does beg this question, with seven of 11 carriers in operation at one time, and the potential to have a lot of drama and a lot of crises going on in different theaters. How can the Navy go along with only 11 carriers? Can we operate 11 carriers, or are we starting to lead into a discussion about building more aircraft carriers, which is going to get into a conversation ultimately about what? Guns and butters. Exactly. Um, for the conditions that we're operating in today, the 11 carriers uh, work. Uh, if you want to have increased carrier presence either in the Middle East or in Asia simultaneously, then I think you're going to be pressing the limits of, of, of what those carriers can do because it's important to recognize, regardless of whether it's an aircraft carrier or a submarine or a destroyer, that uh, you know these are significant capital assets that we keep for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. And just like your car or anything else, you periodically have to do maintenance on them and take care of them, and and uh, uh, and, and and that requires time. You have uh, turnover in crew uh, over the years as people come in the Navy and out of the Navy, and they rotate from sea to shore. So you have to give them some training time to demonstrate their competence and and be able to operate those sophisticated machines. Mm -hmm. And so if you try to um, use more of what we have more often or continuously, 
something has to give. Right. So I think, you know, as I've looked at uh, issues over the years, if you want more presence or if you want to return, for example, to the Eastern Mediterranean or you have challenges in the, in the Baltics, uh, the, the number that I think is about right for the nation is 15 aircraft carriers. 15 carriers. 15 Four carriers. more than we currently have. That is correct. They are very expensive uh, investments that the nation makes, and and that is that is a that that's a question I think that the nation has to ask itself. How many billions of dollars does a new CVN cost? Um, I would I would put the new class of uh, CVN right at around twelve to thirteen billion dollars per ship. Per ship, and that's not including the strike group that goes with it. That's and correct. Carrier and craft and all that. So twelve that's billion dollars. Yeah. And it takes how long from keel to finish? Normally about five to six years. So this but is I would, not a quick fix. Not a quick fix. But I would also say that it's an investment that the nation makes that lasts a half a century. Mm -hmm. uh, I go back to the Enterprise, which was our first nuclear aircraft carrier. Its first mission, uh, what one would call first uh, significant operational mission, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Its last mission was supporting our troops in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so when you consider that investment spread over that amount of time, when you consider that uh, uh, aircraft carriers are sovereign U.S. airfields that we can put anywhere in the world without having to go in and ask and negotiate basing rights and permissions, right. um, that, that gives the country a tremendous uh, amount of flexibility. So that's the consideration, I think, that has to be uh, put into the mix. And what does the nation want to be able to do? How do we want to be able to uh, protect our interests and express our influence? And I think uh, those capabilities are absolutely significant. The Enterprise was CBN 65. It came on in about 1961, 62. Uh, you're you're testing my memory. Well, it's uh, almost bit, as but it's right point is it's almost time. as old as I am, which means it's That's old. That's correct. The life of a carrier today is about fifty years. With That's slip. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So the so the enterprise ran its life and then some. it did. Yeah, right. And um, um, and the carriers that that uh, the enterprise enterprise was a uh, one of a kind carrier. Mm -hmm. The the newer ones are of a class, and then we've just designed and built. That's a the new class. Ford Fair class, Fair right. Fair the, Fair the, class. right. The uh, Enterprise had, I think, eight reactors. That's correct. The new ones have two. Right. And they go uh, refueling, midlife refueling, mm -hmm. and they go in the yard for about a year or two and get just sort of re rebid for a new life. Right. And that, that period of time that one of our carriers is out of service is is one of the reasons why that inventory of 11 is, pre is pressed pretty hard. Right. By the way, if you go on the Google Maps and you uh, put the Google Maps satellite over Newport News, you will see the CVN 65 sitting there being being mm -hmm. sadly kind of picked apart. Yeah. Right. Uh, the current CNO, uh, John Richardson, he testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee in September, and two rather alarming figures came out of this conversation. One was that he claimed that right now um, the service can only meet about 40% of the demand for surface warships at any given time. Uh, do you happen to know what level it was when you were CNO? I, I can't recall, Bill, but... Um, it was 40... I, I would... I, you know, I'm... I, I never put that figure on it. I mean, I, we we deployed them as we could, and, right. and uh, but I would say that it it probably has been a, around that amount. I, I think the 
the the demands clearly that uh, have been placed on our ballistic missile defense capable ships obviously has gone up as the Korean um, nuclear activity has uh, uh, has increased. So I think you're seeing some pretty significant uh, right. demands being placed on the that. other figure that surprises. He talked about a maintenance backlog, and the figure put on it was about five billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, this would seem like an easy fix by Congress. $5 billion in the scheme of a multi-trillion dollar federal budget isn't much, but if you were to do $5 billion in the Navy, what are you fixing? Well, I think, um, you know, you have to look at maintenance in, in two ways. One is what is the, what do you consider to be the backlog of maintenance? Mm -hmm. And what would it cost to fix that? And I think uh, that's where he was quoting. But the other aspect of it is, is your industrial base sized and capable of, of accepting that increase? And that's something I think that is, uh, again, uh, another consideration for the Navy. In other words, what type of, of infrastructure do we need? What, what is the throughput that we would like to have? So even if you were to lay a check for $5 billion on the table, um, you know, you also have to say, okay, how are we going to increase the industrial base to, to be able to move to that level of, of activity? Uh, and and to, be, to do that with the pace with which you're cycling ships uh, makes it even harder because you have to have the ship available to go in there as well. So it's a, it's a multifaceted problem and, uh, and one that I think that we as a nation have to, have to decide what sort of a, of a maritime capability do we wish to have? Mm -hmm. And and it's not just the ships. You have to think of it in terms of, of the people. And then what infrastructure do you need to support that? Which uh, is, is, is not a bad thing from another aspect, which, uh, you know, those are pretty darn good jobs that, uh, that, that people can have in, in repairing and maintaining in maintaining ships, so I think that there's some uh, economic benefit that could accrue from that as well. You graduated from Annapolis in 1973. Congratulations, Correct. you are approaching your 45th um, uh, reunion. Um, what led you to Annapolis? Uh, a, a very long story. Uh, but yeah, we have time. <laughs> uh, the, uh, um, you know, I'd always been attracted to the sea, uh, but at that point in my life, I really didn't quite know what I wanted to do. You went to a, you went to a military prep uh, school. I went you? to a military prep school, and I was asked, uh, and that military prep school couldn't make nomination to the service academies, mm -hmm. correct. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I didn't have to do the congressional nomination process. Okay. And I recall going down the hall one day, and it was a fairly strict school, and, and uh, my counselor saw me and asked me if I was taking the exam for the service academies, and I said no. Um, I had thought at that point in my life, and having grown up uh, from the age of two overseas, primarily in the Middle East, that I thought I might want to go into the Foreign Service. Um, so I said no. He said, why not? I said, I hadn't been thinking about it. He looked at me and he said, you'll take the examination on Saturday. I did, and I got my nomination to the Naval Academy. This would have been at the height of Vietnam. Were you in any way wary of the military? Or? No, not at all. And particularly the school that I was attending, um, you know, we uh, uh, had 
several of the of the staff, particularly on in within the ROTC program, uh, were uh, coming back from Vietnam, and and uh, there was no wariness on on my part there. So he graduated in 1973, and I imagine that a conversation with Ensign Ruffhead in 1973 would have been pretty straightforward. We're moving out of Vietnam, but there's still a very intense Cold War going on for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. So let's fast forward now to 2017 and the conversation you would have with another ensign coming out of Annapolis. We're not in a Cold War, but we're in an age of a war on terror, which is going to go on in the foreseeable future. What would you advise that young ensign? Well, I think, uh, one, the way that I look at things today is that we are not in a Cold War, but we are emerging onto a landscape in which we have, for the first time since the end of the Cold War, uh, a significant peer competitor. Uh, in the Cold War, we had a peer competitor that was largely military. Today, we have a peer competitor that is rising in its military capabilities that, in my view, can close the technological gaps more quickly because of the pace with which technology moves. So I think that's one thing to be worrying about. But it also is a, is a more complex problem because that peer competitor is also an economic competitor. So I would say that that, that is something that needs to be taken into account. But the point that I think I would make uh, to a young officer coming in that I would make to those who are currently leading is that when I came in to the uh, Navy in, in the early 70s that we were not paying enough attention to the readiness of the force. And, and I fear that as we use the force in the way that we are today, meeting as many demands as we are today, addressing the types of demands that, the, that, that you cited with, with Admiral Richardson, the uh, uh, figure that he gave, that we really need to pay a lot of attention, and the devil is in the details, but we have to pay a lot of attention to the readiness of the force that we have. We can talk about increasing the top line, um, and you know, I for one believe that we should do that, but it's going to take a while for those new capabilities and the numbers to come online. So we really need to spend a lot of attention uh, uh, with regard to making sure that the force we have today is ready from a maintenance perspective and from a training perspective and from an equipping perspective. And I would submit that some of the things that we have seen here recently with the accidents that have taken place in the Western Pacific um, are indicators to me that readiness needs to have not just a priority in how important we say it is, but we've got to get into the details and make sure we're doing it right, resourcing it right, and taking care of these machines. You're a surface warfare officer, so you must take those collisions quite personally. I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are indeed tragedies. Somebody who could listen to this podcast and might be offended at this point would be Vladimir Putin who puts a lot of money into submarines, which he believes can strike down American carriers. What do you make of the Russian Navy? Uh, I think he's putting effort into recapitalizing that Navy. It, mm -hmm. it uh, 
uh, if you wanted to talk about a navy that was in the depths of uh, of, of a readiness doldrum, right. uh, that that fit the Russian navy. But I think that they're seeing the same thing. They need to bring the old stuff back online. Clearly, investing in uh, submarines, which from a naval perspective are hugely important. I uh, uh, I often referred to submarines in a chess context and. Uh, and, and and some people thought I had gone over to the dark side. I'm not a submariner, but uh, they became my favorite people and my favorite uh, uh, weapon. But I referred to them as the invisible queen in a chess game. Uh, I think most of the listeners know that the queen is one of the most versatile and powerful pieces on a chessboard. Mm-hmm. The beauty of it uh, and the form of a submarine is you never know where it is. And so uh, the Russians get it, the Chinese get it because their submarine programs are, are moving along uh, uh, extensively. Um, countries such as Japan, which makes one of the best conventional submarines in the world, mm-hmm. they get it. Um, and we clearly understand the importance of, uh, of submarines in warfare. So. Uh, you know, he's putting his money where I think he can get the most bang for his buck, and that's going to be in a submarine. That was my next question, though. To what end is he building these new fancy submarines? I think submarines? It, it, it gives you a couple of things. One, um, it gives you the ability to, uh, at a minimum, disrupt sea lanes, but potentially to, to control them. And with the submarine technology that we have today, it gives you the ability to launch missiles, either mm-hmm. uh, ballistic, uh, you know, strategic missiles or, or uh, tactical weapons. Uh, it affords you an opportunity uh, to gather intelligence in ways that uh, can't be done in, in, uh, with other means. And in... Uh, in, in the world of, of special operations, it gives you uh, capabilities of putting special operators in places where you may want them uh, to your advantage. So, um, uh, you know, you're, get, you're getting the sense that I do like submarines. I think they're valuable. And, and I think that's the other aspect of Asia that, uh, uh, that is very, very important is, you know, I, I, I uh, have often said in, in recent years that Asia has discovered the submarine, and I think you're going to see a proliferation of submarines there. We're already seeing it in some of the, the uh, other countries besides the ones that I mentioned. But it's also going to be very important that we maintain the ability to uh, operate against those submarines and, uh, and win. And, and that's another set of investments and, and new technologies uh, that we could talk about again for a very long and time. Offbeat question: um, A couple of months ago, a photograph of a U.S. sub coming back, I think, to Bangor to the Trident uh, um, facilities at Bangor, Washington, and uh, off the uh, conning tower of the submarine was a Charlie Roger flag, mm-hmm. which just had the internet above uh, to what it did. And I guess in the submarine service, it means it was doing some sort of special op. Um, they, that's that's true, and um, you know, never underestimate the the initiative and the pride of sailors as they come in after having done special things. You would highly command the book Blind Man's Bluff. I I, imagine. I, I would, I would, um, and uh, I I think it's also uh, you know not just Blind Man's Bluff, but to get a good sense of the uh, role that submarines can play 
uh, you know, just go a bit further back in time. And one of the great campaigns and efforts uh, in warfare that is so underappreciated and neglected is the Battle of the Atlantic that took place um, and was so vital to supplying uh, the UK and, and ultimately Russia, but it also uh, is a great way to understand the strategic and the operational aspects of submarine warfare. And it's also a great lesson in technology. The British develop ASDIC. Exactly. If they don't develop ASDIC, they have a very hard time sinking submarines. The Germans have essentially dive boats in the war. It's a submarine. We call it a submarine. But a U-boat is a dive boat. It can only stay underwater for an exactly. extended time. Not until 1944 and 45 do they actually have a boat that can stay underwater for extended periods of time. And I would, I would even go so far as to say until um, the, the U.S. developed the nuclear submarine. Mm -hmm. uh, and my submarine friends would, would be offended by this. But uh, up until that time... Uh, submarines were surface ships that went underwater. Right. Uh, with the advent of nuclear power, the submarine truly became a submarine and was aptly named the first one Nautilus. Um, and, and that transformed naval warfare in, 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 I think, one of the most significant ways in history. The ability to have that capability uh, able to remain underwater and operate at the speeds that they do is really uh, extraordinary. Final question, how often do you get back to Annapolis? Uh, I, I have not been back uh, that often. Um, I what, had what, the opportunity. What years were you commandant? I was the commandant in 97 to 99. 97 to 99. And um, I had not been back. Uh, most of my returns had been on ship visits, and we would go back to have a ship there for the midshipmen to become mm -hmm. familiar with. And uh, obviously, in uh, subsequent assignments after Commandant, I would go back in official capacities, uh, but I, I go back a couple of times a year. I recently had the pleasure of, of being back there to participate in a program on politics in the military. Mm -hmm. And uh, every time I go back, uh, I'm inspired by the young men and women who are there, uh, the opportunities that they have ahead of them. Uh, but I would also say, uh, an underappreciation of how quickly their careers will go by once they graduate. But in, uh, in, in looking at them and reflecting back on what I was able to do and the experiences that I had, I can think of no uh, more exciting, more worthwhile uh, career than serving in the United States Navy. And, and I tell them in all honesty that if I could do it all over again, I would. And you're bullish on the future of naval officers because you like what you see at the academy and you like the way that ROTC has returned to college campuses. I, I am. I am. And I think as we go into a, uh, a future, uh, the security challenges are going to continue. I think they will be more diverse. Uh, you know, when I came in, as you alluded to, it was the Cold War. It was us and them. It was also, it was very clear. Right. Today, a young man or woman going out into the fleet uh, needs to deal with an emergence of another peer competitor. They have to deal with the types of operations that are being conducted against um, uh, uh, you know, terrorist targets. And, and, and I think we've all seen 
uh, how the Navy has been used in that capacity, whether it's striking or use of our SEALs uh, ashore. So I think that uh, the future is going to be more demanding, but I say that in a positive way. Mm -hmm. It will require uh, great initiative uh, and intellect uh, and dedication to leading the young men and women in the Navy in, into that future. So I think it's a tremendous opportunity. There's one other aspect to it, which we uh, talked about earlier, which is how to keep people in the service. And if you're on a submarine, if you're flying off a carrier on a surface ship, there are certain points in career where you hit a crossroads. You have to decide, okay, I've been in for eight or nine years. Do I get out? I've been in for 15 or 20. Do I get out? What can the government do, Admiral Roughhead, to keep people in the military, besides the obvious pay more money, offer more benefits? What yeah. else is there to yeah. it? And, and on the, the, the two points that you mentioned, I would submit that those are not the most significant retention factors. They're important. Um, obviously, uh, people have to provide for their families, and they want to see their, their children uh, be able to have opportunities and education and, 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 and training. But in my career, uh, even though I've seen you know spikes in in financial incentives that have taken place, what really makes the difference in retention uh, is one that there is a sense that the work that is being done is appreciated, and I think we currently are at a point in time where the American public truly. Uh, appreciates and values and respects the work that our young men and women are doing. But the other is what I referred to uh, a bit earlier, and that is giving our young men and women what they need to do the job. And that was, in my career, the factor that I saw affect retention more than anything else. We'd gotten pay raises. Uh, we were now beginning to see uh, the American public come out of the attitudes that were prevalent uh, during the latter stages of Vietnam and immediately after Vietnam. Uh, but it was when the, the sailors that, that I served with began to get the parts they needed, the tools they needed, they began to see new systems coming on. Right. That is what they came in the Navy to do. Uh, the operations are are extraordinarily exciting, but if you give them the tools to do the job right in the way that they believe it needs to be done, that's when you're fulfilled. The money helps, money is important, but it's that fulfillment that you get from uh, doing hard things well that inspires people. Admiral Gary Ruffhead, thank you for your service and thank you for all you do for the Hoover Institution. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Commit your friends to give us a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Admiral Gary Ruffhead and his Hoover colleagues to you every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. I don't think you're on Twitter or Instagram, are you, Ruffhead? No, I stay off Twitter. <laughs> That's a wise decision. <laughs> For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org. 
or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.